Join us for Mountain Land Physical Therapy's 7th Annual Running Summit Conference, which will take place on September 29th and go through October 1st, taking place in awesome Park City, Utah. Led by the experts in the field of running medicine, the Mountain Land Running Summit will give participants a deeper look into the common issues regarding runner's health and the innovative treatment plans now available. Participants can also earn up to 12 and a half CEU credits and can enjoy various recreational activities in Park City. Early bird pricing available, so buy now. Welcome to episode 74 of the Mountainland Running Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Heiderscheidt from the University of Wisconsin Sports Medicine. And today I'm flying solo. Jeremy has abandoned me. He's got other more important things to do. Now he's he's uh, off taking, saving the world. So he's uh, he's left me to today's podcast, which is actually good because I'm really excited to chat with our, our guest today. Uh, before we introduce him, though, don't forget to send questions and feedback to podcast at mlrehab.com. Always appreciate hearing from you and your suggestions for future guests. All right. Today, we are joined by Alex Noblo from Travis Air Force Base in California. Dr. Noblo is a sports medicine physician at the David Grant Medical Center at Travis Air Force Base. He is one of the assistant program directors for the Family Medicine Residency and a core faculty member of the Sports Medicine Fellowship. Dr. Noblo completed medical school at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland, Family Medicine Residency at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida, and Primary Care Sports Medicine Fellowship at Fort Belvoir, Virginia. I'm guessing I pronounced that wrong, but you can jump in and correct me, Alex. He enjoys... All right. He enjoys diving into the medical literature and seeking ways to optimize rehabilitation programs with a goal of getting family and sports medicine physicians more comfortable talking about and prescribing therapeutic exercises for injury, as well as running gait retraining and how we operationalize this for primary care providers on the front lines of patient care. Welcome, Alex, and thank you for joining us today. No, thank you so much for the invite. I'm I'm stoked and, and just humbled to be here. Yeah, oh, this is exciting. And, and you know, I have to say, when I stumbled across your paper, I thought, this is this is fantastic. This is in an area that I didn't think I was going to be finding any any uh, work to be done, and at least not at this point until maybe there was more more research in the, the gate retraining area. But to see a primary care physician show interest in gate retraining and then interest in how do we get more primary care providers to understand the potential value of it was was really was really refreshing to see. Yeah, I, um, this is it, it, actually this, a lot of this stemmed from a project that I had in my sports medicine fellowship. So one of the cool opportunities we have during our fellowship is to design a research project that we can then take with us to potentially uh, set up and work on after we leave fellowship at our, our first assignment um, out, out in the Air Force. And the thing that really spoke to me a lot was running gate retraining. I actually ran um, competitively in high school and in college for in cross country and track and absolutely loved it. And so it's always running has always just been a passion of mine. And, you know, I, I guess I can even probably rewind a little bit to start thinking about like how even like the running gate retraining kind of even started to really impact me as well. And it's funny, I I was a traditional heel striker all throughout my competitive running career overstrode. Like I go back and look at like films my parents took of me running in, in meets. And I'm just like, ooh, there's so many things <laughs> I would I would love to do differently now. 
Um, but I had this like aha moment in my senior year as a uh, collegiate cross country runner and track runner. Um, normally, I would, as I mentioned, heel strike. I'd uh, I'd overstride, and I still seemed to be able to compete fairly well, and I, I did fairly well. And my senior year, there was a track meet. We had a bunch of our guys uh, in with the 5K, and I will tell you. Anything under distance of underneath the 5K, I actually, because of just the track spike, you're kind of naturally more inclined to strike with your midfoot mm-hmm. to kind of shorten your stride and kind of just have that quicker cadence. But I thought to myself, like, why not give it a shot and try to adapt what I do in the 1500 for the 5,000 meter? And I had one of the best races of my like 5K career that that's that senior year, that senior season. But it's funny then my legs were completely trashed for like a week or two after because I just I wasn't ready for it. Right. Like it was but that stuck with me. And about a year and a half later into medical school, I was attending a family medicine conference and got to hear from dark. Dr. Mark Kukazel, he's a um, Air Force family medicine uh, reservist, uh, yeah. practice down in West Virginia, and heard his thoughts on on kind of that more the way he describes is that more efficient running form or that kind yep. of that that uh, you know midfoot strikes, landing underneath your center of of mass, upright posture, and just and and all of the different the factors that he was speaking about, and all of a sudden that that light bulb switched and flipped, everything started to click. He showed that graph from that Nature article that uh, Lieberman's group pushed out in Nature back in 2010. And I just, I, 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 everything started to solidify my mind. I said, you know what, this is like the area that I could do, go down rabbit holes when I'm doing literature reviews. And this is even just back in medical school. And so when I had the opportunity to start thinking, what is my research project going to be once I became a sports medicine fellow, I said, it's got to be something in the running gate retraining realm. But then I began to think, how like there's obviously a lot of biomechanical studies there's all these things where people are on treadmills and they're analyzing with with videos and cameras and force plates and sensors and for me and my family medicine and sports medicine clinic we've got a treadmill we've got the the capability of either using a you know cell phone camera or or another camera that we've got up on a stand but i started to realize this isn't super practical for a family physician or even some sports medicine physicians to be able to do and how can i operationalize that and so I started thinking about that project, but then I realized there was a huge gap. And that was, do family physicians even care about running gate retraining? So I, I delved into the literature and there wasn't anything to support one way or the other. I knew I was passionate about it, but what, what was everybody else feeling? So that's really where this, this initial idea grew out of is filling this knowledge gap of what do, what do family physicians really even think, or, or do they care? Or do they know about running gate retraining? Do they know that it, there's that benefit that patients can experience? And then- if even if they do value it, are they able to, to take, you know, take it and use it because it's incredibly difficult based off of a lot of the studies that are out there right now showing the benefit, they all seem to revolve around, you know, multi sessions. So you, you know, six, seven, eight sessions in with a, a with a provider, whether that be a physical therapist or a sports medicine, or even a family medicine physician, or an, even an athletic trainer that's that's working, working in that realm and feeling comfortable with it. And so all of these different um, limitations, what, what are, what's the actual practice? And so I wanted to kind of establish that before I even started to try to, to work towards hopefully maybe solving that as well. I think that's great. There's actually two points to your, to your back story that I think are really important to highlight. One is that it wasn't as if you woke up one day and said, aha, this is what I want to do, right? There was this buildup of experience and exposure and refinement to ultimately coming up with a question that you felt like you wanted to jump on. And number two, that you were able to find an area of a topic that was 
important to you that you had the ability and the resources to address. You know, you like you said, there it wasn't as if you were in some sort of biomechanics lab at the time where you could dive into some other work, but you could certainly talk to people. You could certainly understand behavior. And that I think is is a really great approach to research and why why really anybody can can do research if as long as they are able to adjust it and adapt it to their environment, circumstances, resources, whatever it may be. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, teaching in a residency now in our fellowship program that we've just started up here, it's, it's one of those cool things that you really get to think about, you really get to start conceptualizing is there, you're not always going to have these resources of a huge randomized control trial and getting those off the ground are very labor intensive and require a lot of effort and support. And there is so much to be gained in for our scholarly world in medicine, mm-hmm. whether that be sports medicine or elsewhere, you know, where just asking clinical questions and then figuring out how to do so, um, it's it's really really powerful. And uh, I will say the this the survey also I think it was a perfect timed situation uh, in that the survey process itself about how to disseminate and how to ask this question really just kind of had taken off over the last three years in our little military family medicine community. So we actually have a annual meeting where we get all of our military family physicians together, where we get, you know, just like most other organizations, they have their annual meetings for um, continuing medical education and continuing uh, other uh networking and um, mentoring and all those types of things. And so for military family physicians, that's the Uniformed Services Academy of Family Physicians, and we, we hold our, our meeting in the spring. And a, a few years before I even had this idea, so I think it was probably about 2015, 2016, they came up with this idea of, hey, we have all of these military family physicians together at this meeting. Why don't we actually use this opportunity to promote scholarly activity by having military family physicians submit scholarly questions and survey questions into this big omnibus package. And so they normally accept about four to five survey groups each year. And you get this gets sent out to the members that have attended. So typically, it's also kind of a, uh, a captive audience, if you will. So your response rate actually is typically pretty solid. Uh, ours here in this study, the, the survey that I was able to publish was about 72%, if I remember correctly. So really, really happy with that kind of response rate, which is difficult to do when you're just sending it out via email. But when you have everybody and they actually carve out a section of time during the conference in one of the main sessions for everybody in attendance. And so you're looking at a conference of maybe 500 plus attendees and you get a 70% response rate. It's, That's it's great pretty cool. Um, And so, and the only thing they ask is that, Hey, once you've actually submitted this, you get your data. We ask you just submit it back in the research competition. So you can then show everybody the cool, uh, the fruits of your labor, if you will, Mm -hmm. and the fruits of this program. And so that's, I mean, that's a, that's an easy sell, especially just coming from a graduate medical education role, love being able to have scholarly activity that I can not only kind of promote and bring other residents and other faculty into, but again, it's just a gift that keeps on giving on that front too. That's a very cool program. It's certainly one that that uh, that worked for you. So again, just for our listeners, a quick recap. We're speaking with Dr. Alex Noblo, and we're reviewing his paper entitled Running Gate Retraining, a Sports Medicine Training Gap in Family Medicine. This was published in the journal Family Medicine in 2022 in May of that year. Uh, and we'll post the link on our uh, webpage uh, where the podcast is able to be downloaded from. So Alex, then when when you were having to do the survey or when you did the survey at the, at the meeting uh, at the Uniformed Services Academy of Family physicians annual meeting was it basically anybody in the audience that was able to participate in it or did you try to narrow it down to certain individuals yeah that's a great question so the 
anybody that was in attendance could answer, but then based off of some of the demographic questions, we were able to narrow it to the, the group we were looking at, right? And so there were certainly medical students in attendance. And, and what I was really more focused on was folks that were in clinical practice. And so our staff physicians and our resident physicians. And so we were able to actually just be based off of answering the question of, hey, when are you when is your expected or when was your graduate uh, graduation date from medical school? If nobody, if somebody didn't place that date, we just ended up excluding that data set as well as anybody that essentially indicated that they were currently in medical school. And so we were able to really narrow our group to our military family physicians that were either staff physicians, already graduated residency, or were currently in residency. Yeah. All right. So what were the key findings? Yeah. So the, the exciting thing and the thing that I had kind of hypothesized and I was really, uh, I was happy to see was that fam military family physicians seem to value running gait retraining. Yeah. And so that was super exciting to me that, Hey, there's uh, my, uh, my colleagues feel very, you know, feel very similarly to me. And the question, the way the question was framed was that if obstacles were removed too. So right. Acknowledging that there are going to be obstacles. And so trying to remove that from the equation, but if obstacles were removed, how, how much do you value running gait yeah. retraining in terms of helping your patients, whether it be with running related injury risk or treating running related injury. And so this huge response. And so we used a Likert scale and essentially looking at Likert scale responses of three and above. So the way we it was framed is essentially at least somewhat valuable. 82% of folks felt that value, which is, which is That's awesome. And, yeah. and, you know, certainly I think there's a lot of factors into that. I think that there's a uh, high prevalent, we see in the military family medicine community, we do see a, a fair number of active duty folks, so young active folks that are required to run. We certainly see our, our retirees and our, our um, dependent population, which is the population of spouses and children as well of those active duty individuals. So we see still a wide breadth, but we do see probably a higher prevalence of musculoskeletal injury. I just even think back to my deployment back in 2019, Afghanistan, and I actually kept track of all the different like categories and types. And I, a third of the patients I saw over a six month time frame were musculoskeletal injury. And so um, it, we, we definitely see it. It's, it's definitely yep. there. And so I, you know, certainly I think that probably bled into why that high value is. And, and hopefully also in that all of our military family medicine residencies, residencies have sports medicine fellowship trained faculty as part. And so that's a, a important part that a lot of our, or all of our um, residencies have as a component. And so there's hopefully some education and some information yeah. um, being shared there, at least in terms of the benefit of it. But then the 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 other thing that I was excited about because it was it proved that there was this gap was that mm -hmm. military family medicine physicians lack the confidence to talk about running gate retraining and they don't feel like they are talking to patients about it enough, right? So they whether that be for a variety of obstacles, they're they're not having the conversations and they're not having the confidence. And so, you know, when we looked at that Likert scale and we looked then and narrowed it down to the one and two responses. So essentially with essentially mostly no patients um, or with here, and I'm just bringing up some of my, uh, my figures to remind myself of these specific responses. So I can, I can speak a little bit more intelligently about it, sure. but uh, with mostly no patients or with few patients, it's a, it was a huge proportion of our, our, of our survey respondents. And then when you looked at the confidence folks, not confident in all are only slightly confident. That was also a huge proportion. So we're looking at numbers of 63% of, of folks Felt like they weren't talking to patients enough and 71% of folks didn't feel like they had the confidence. Yeah. And so again, a gap there where it's saying, all right, well then what, what are those obstacles or what are those gaps leading to that? And so we, one of the other questions that I included in the survey was listing out several of the 
the obstacles that I hypothesize might be barriers for folks and asking them to kind of list what their their, their highest or largest obstacle would be. A majority of, of respondents said, hey, it's lack of knowledge. I don't feel like I have the knowledge to educate patients. And then the second highest group was lack of time. So again, kind of the things I was thinking were going to be the case, you know, other options that folks could have put was lack of equipment, unknown efficacy. So they, it wasn't that they didn't feel like they could educate or it wasn't that they didn't have the knowledge, but they just didn't know if it was, there was a benefit. And so those groups were actually smaller, which is, which was great. It was really just the, the lack of knowledge and lack of time that seemed to really be a barrier. Yeah, I think that's really, really an important one because exactly like you say, it's, you know, their their lack of confidence of doing it and their their lack of knowledge about it doesn't prevent them from seeing that doesn't dominate their their um their perception of the potential value for running gate retraining as you mentioned that they find value in it, potential value in it how exactly to implement it how exactly to utilize utilize it when to prescribe it that may be that gap that seems to be the gap that needs to be addressed yeah and and that seemed to bear out as well we included a little knowledge kind of question not validated it was just mm-hmm. something that based off of the literature i had reviewed and my own um uh, experience and training, uh, kind of initially forming the ideas, but then really making sure it was backed up in the literature asking, hey, which of these common running related injuries isn't really backed by the current medical literature in terms of being helped by running gait retraining. And so we we gave them the options of, you know, chronic exertional compartment syndrome, great evidence and in, in, yep. in literature suggesting that there's a, a huge benefit there. The telefemoral pain syndrome, again, another thing we see so mm-hmm. commonly, both in, in, in any of our running populations. Right. Um, we, we looked at, uh, and now I'm blanking on my third one, but we looked at the, um, and we added metatarsal stress factor, which was the correct answer, right? We actually yeah, think that with probably incorrect yeah. running gait retraining, you might see some of those stresses, but probably not right. something helped specifically right. by our patients. Um, here, let me just bring up my my questions and responses here specifically. Ah, of course. And this is like, this is uh, medial tibial stress syndrome, right? Our, our shin splints right. as well. And, and seeing what, um, what benefit running gait retraining can get from there. But looking at that, we had a pretty high number of folks get that question wrong. So again, yeah. kind of also supporting that not lack, you know, lack of knowledge of how to educate patients, but maybe even unknown efficacy, that piece or that obstacle is probably coming into play there as well. You know, I do wonder, do you think that obviously this was a very, very specific population, right? These are individuals in the military who've likely have had some experience with gate retraining because as we know, the military has done some really great work and research in that in that realm. And running related injuries are a huge issue that of oftentimes being talked about. But I think if, I wonder if you were to survey like at, for example, the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine's annual meeting, a more, more inclusive group, right? That's representative of a whole lot of different practice environments and patterns. If that number of people that maybe find value in gate retraining would drop. Yeah, it's interesting you asked that. So one of the other pieces to the survey was trying to hopefully tease out some of the biases, especially having that sports medicine training piece to it. And so we had about 30 of our uh, 300 or so respondents that were actually sports medicine fellowship, fellowship trained, or at least identified as so. And when we took that population as well as the population, and we actually found that that group had statistically significant differences compared to the rest of the population. So they felt value was higher. They felt they were talking to patients more about it and they were more confident, which makes complete sense when we look at the training that we get in primary care sports medicine right. fellowships. And then just because not everybody who understands or appreciates running gate retraining, especially in the military population, right? If they've had additional training in running gate retraining, whether it be a seminar or workshop or some other kind of uh, CME conference, we, we looked at that and that group actually, the value actually was pretty consistent, again, high. Okay. 
but then there was statistically significant increases in knowledge and competence there too, right? So seeing those statistically significant relationships, I pulled those individuals from the data set, and we actually still found the same exact scenarios. The, folk, the, the remaining population of this from the survey respondents said, we still feel like the value is high, but our knowledge, or excuse me, not our knowledge, our confidence is low and our the frequency of these discussions is also low. And so it didn't seem to matter that we had this population of this group in our data set, because once you removed it, you still saw those same types of, of relationships and those still, those still the same kind of uh, numerical value of responses. But then I think that also leads us to another point is, hey, the, you're right, the military community inherently had, there's a little bias and right. We're seeing more running related injury just by the nature of our profession and the patients, a lot of the patients we take care of, but you would also then, I think you could argue, and uh, uh, this wasn't necessarily addressed in the survey, but you could argue then that there's probably more training that you would expect to occur in residencies and fellowships and military family medicine. And so if you looked at our civilian populations, our civilian residency programs, I would tend to then theorize that we probably aren't doing as much sports medicine education, just because again, we, we tra tailor a lot of our training towards our patient populations that we're taking care of and no folks will take care of, you know, in the immediate future, while also trying to be as broad as possible, especially in family medicine. And so if the military family medicine community, which we would expect probably will have the highest, or we would theorize has the highest amount of training or at least experience in this regard is feeling this lack of confidence yeah. and they're not talking about it. I, I, I'm, I'd be fascinated to see what this would look like in the civilian world. And so asking that at the AMSSM conference or asking at other conferences, I think would be awesome information to, to add to the medical literature on the topic. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, you know, it, you're certainly the, the, the population that you treat in the military is, is an important one. And especially as, uh, when the, the recruits are coming in during basic combat training, all variety of different backgrounds in terms of physical activity and whatnot and exposure to running. So very much you're getting a representative community type population many times. So it would be very curious to see how that sort of implementation exists in a in an environment that practice differently than what may be present in the military. But yeah. I'm, I'm optimistic that we're, we're making inroads into, into more community-based care to be able to show the value of gate retraining. Obviously, a lot of research needing to be done still uh, to show efficacy and effectiveness, but we're, we're starting to make inroads on that for sure. Yeah. And I, I think the, the, I mean, the biggest hurdle, right? That family physician is seeing their, their clinic and they're just, they're, they're crushing it. They're taking care yeah. of their patients, but they got 15 to 20 minutes, right? And, and sometimes less, exactly. maybe a little bit more depending on your practice setting, but that 15 to 20 minute sweet spot where that patient maybe is, they've got to come to the diagnosis first and then to consider thinking about, well, what can I do if running gate retraining is helpful? How can I then operationalize that and bring yeah. that? And so I think it leads to a lot of referrals. It leads to our, our physical therapy colleagues who are awesome and can help on that front. But sometimes patients are not necessarily, you know, you know, from a uh, socioeconomic standpoint, they don't, they can't pay that copay to go see the physical therapist sure. or they're, they don't have the time to take away from work to potentially um, go to multiple sessions. And so can we start thinking about, especially for primary care providers, can we start giving them some tools that while it's not perfect and it's not the most ideal gate retraining scenario, can we start highlighting some specific practices or specific um, changes to gate that are universal or that could potentially just help a good number of patients give primary care physicians the tools on how to educate on a, a specific thing. Maybe it's, yeah. Hey, here's an education piece on increasing a patient's step rate or gate cadence. Right. Yeah. And knowing that that seems to have a pretty 
powerful impact on a lot of different running related injuries. Mm-hmm. If I can provide a really helpful educational resource on that front and then talk to the patient about why it's important, maybe that's going to help fix a vast majority of patients. And then what the next step is, is, Hey, they're still not getting improvement. We're, we're, we're not ex- thinking that maybe they've been able to implement it correctly as a patient because of the resource we've given them. Maybe that's then the next level to get to those settings or where they can do a full gait analysis with video and force plates and, and, and some of those other, other tools that we have at our capability. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Could you could you envision like creating some sort of a instructional website almost? Because I think, you know, when it comes to gait retraining, seeing and identifying is a big step to be able to implement and understand what what the changes are you're looking for. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's huge. And, you know, I, I, there's several different sites and I think a lot of folks have mm-hmm. stuff, especially with, with social media and YouTube and everything we have at our, our disposal. Now there's a lot of information out there, Agreed. but to then be able to back some of these things up and saying, this is evidence-based. I know yeah. if you watch this video and you take the, the, these cues, we know that a good majority of patients are going to get, either they're going to reduce their running related injury risk if they make these changes, they may be going to get back from a running related injury faster in terms of their return to run. So answering some of those types of clinical questions would be really, really cool to actually say, all right, we know that this content that we're starting to put out in these very small snippets of intervention have this impact. And so let's then push this out and put this in the hands of our primary care providers, our family physicians, our internists, our pediatricians, those that are really at the front line and seeing a lot of these running related injuries before they get to us in primary care, sports medicine, physical therapy, orthopedics, and whatnot. Well, that's awesome. Well, you got your first study out and published. What do you got next for us? So the, the, the next, uh, the next kind of thought that what this initial study, as I mentioned, kind of filled the gap actually just in like the introduction section of when I was kind of creating an IRB project, right? I said, there's a gap. And before I can really justify really putting all the time into this, I needed to make sure there was a gap. So my next ideal study, the thing that I'm hoping to potentially get to in the next year or two, as long as the, the uh, military doesn't um, direct me in a couple different uh, <laughs> directions and, and give a, put a couple more things on my plate. But my hope would be to find a educational resource, whether that be to design it or to find something that's already out there, and then operationalize that for the family medicine setting. Right. So saying, hey, and that would probably include something to the extent of, hey, we're going to bring these patients in to analyze their gait and then bring them back in to analyze their gait after the in- intervention. Not because we expect that for the family physicians that will be utilizing this resource, mm-hmm. but then we can actually say it, it wasn't just an injury piece. We were actually seeing some quantitative changes to the gait from point A to point B, but actually looking at that and utilizing a you know little small snippet practical resource to put in the hands of patients. Uh, that's, that's my dream study that I'm hoping to get to in the next, uh, year or two. So, um, that, that, now that, that would, yeah, that would be, that would, and again, understanding that as you kind of mentioned, and we were talking about a little bit earlier, the more you get into these more randomized control trials, they become much more labor intensive. And so it's yeah. not as uh, nice as just kind of get gathering the, the information about a knowledge gap. Now it's trying to actually make it practical and operationalize it. And I'm excited. This is, it's a, it's something that I, I'm very passionate about and hopefully we'll get off the ground, but um, yeah, that's, that's where, that's the next step for this. Well, it sounds like a fantastic project and one that we'll absolutely have to have you back on to hear your findings for. That'll be, that'll be great to share with the audience. Awesome. No, I'd be more than happy to, to come back on and, and chat. Awesome. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciated hearing more about the work you've done. And, and again, f- f- great job. I mean, really, really a nice work to be able to fill that gap that exists. Really appreciate it. Thank you.
Yeah. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. On behalf of my co-host, Jeremy Stoker, we'd like to thank you for tuning in. And as a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. Reminder to check for updates on the 2022 Mountainland Running Summit, September 29th through October 1st at summit.mlrehab.com. As always, you can find more information on all of the running medicine resources offered by Mountainland Physical Therapy at mlrehab.com slash run. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountainland Physical Therapy.